This week on Geek Explained, with the global pandemic causing panic and disorder around the world, it's important in times like these for us to provide escapism, an opportunity to take your mind off topics like disease and try to spotlight happier stories. So join us as we spotlight the zombie outbreak survival horror comic, Deceased. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is our latest Geek Explained Spotlight, the series that we do every single month where we put a spotlight on a specific graphic novel, limited series, etc., etc. And this month we are doing Deceased, the, I think, surprising smash hit from 2019. Um, It's one of, I think... It blew my expectations way out of the water, and we will be going in-depth on the story in this week's episode. We also have our latest weekly review on the latest episode of Harley Quinn Season 2, as well as our next comics callback. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Alright guys and dolls, so I'm not gonna lie to you, we pretty much have nothing for news this week. Um, There's just not a lot going on in the realm of uh, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. Um, We have two pieces of news this week. There's not a whole lot going on, but... There is stuff that I think we definitely need to talk about. Uh, First off, in miscellaneous news, The Last of Us Part 2, which was supposed to be uh, coming out at the, I believe, beginning of next month, has been indefinitely delayed. We don't know what the situation is. We don't know why it was um, put on delay. We don't know why it was just kind of put on the shelf for the time being, but... um, Naughty Dog and Neil Druckmann are trying to be as upfront about it as possible. They just haven't really given us more info than that. But um, it's sad because I think this is the time to put out games and such to really help people pass the time while they're in their uh, quarantine. But if it's for the good of the game, totally get it. We've had a lot of games get pushed back this, uh, this year. So if it gets pushed back, I won't. I won't be surprised by that. And the other piece of news is film news. We got our first look at the uh, Dune film, which is coming out soon, I think. Let me double check. I'm looking at the article right now. Um, Basically, uh, it's going to be directed by uh, Denis Villanueva. I probably said that wrong, and I apologize. But um, it's an adaptation of the Frank Herbert 1965 novel, also entitled Dune, which spawned, I think, like five or six sequels. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not super familiar with Dune. Uh, That might be heresy. That might be, you know a uh, pitchfork moment but i if these uh 
if these photos are anything to go by, I am super interested in it. It looks really interesting. Um, from what I can understand, at least from the summary from the article, is that it's based around like kind of a feudal society that has like a bunch of different planets that are all kind of ruled by some uh, governing body, and everybody's kind of gearing up for a rebellion. But um, it looks really interesting. I'm not sure exactly when is it supposed... Oh, it's, so it's releasing on December 18th. Fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, it looks really interesting. It stars uh, Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Dave Bautista, Zendaya, Jason Momoa, Stellan Skarsgård, and Javier Bardem. Um, most of those actors are not in these pictures, but you know who is front and center? Josh Brolin, the man. Um Front and center in the first photo I'm looking at, he's got some really, like, it looks like really cool sci-fi samurai armor, which I dig. Um, the second photo is uh, Oscar Isaac in the exact same armor, so I'm assuming that they're allies, they're from the same clan. Uh, we've also got Zendaya with some really weird, like, um, I don't know what that is, a tube going into her nose. Um, Jason Momoa, beardless, we now know why he shaved his beard uh, last year. And he's looking, he's looking good. Um, Rebecca Ferguson, one of, she's just a rock star. And she is on the rise, has been since uh, she debuted in Mission Impossible. And the rest of these photos are more like landscape looking photos with some actors kind of peppered in here and there. But it looks interesting. It's sci-fi, so I will definitely be, um, I'll definitely be turning up in the theater if, you know, God willing, the theater or the movie actually comes out and we're allowed to go to the theaters but it looks interesting so i will be checking it out for sure and that is going to do it for this week's news so with that let's go ahead and move right on to the main course the entree if you will of this week's episode which is our latest geek explain spotlight on deceased and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him. So when Deceased was announced in 2019 as a six-issue miniseries, uh, written by Tom Taylor with art by Trevor Harrison, there wasn't a whole lot of hype around it. Um, at least I know I didn't have a whole lot of hype for it. Um, the people who uh, run in my circle didn't really have high expectations. Tom Taylor is a fantastic writer. Trevor Harrison, I wasn't super familiar with his work, but the, um, the work that I had seen was good. But it just seemed like kind of a throwaway like we've done this before other companies have done this before and this is just gonna be one of those run-of-the-mill stories that you just kind of read set down and has no real staying power but throughout 2019 as this issue or as the series released issue after issue after issue steadily the excitement started to build the first issue was incredibly strong in its setup, and as the story escalated with each issue that came out, pretty quickly, and you can hear this on this podcast, um, I started to get more excited about it. I started to get, with every issue, more invested in the story, more invested in the characters, because they were taking something that was... Um, 
I think, a pretty cliche story trope and really running with it, not looking at it through the lens of cynicism and really saying, what can we do in this story to make it have staying power, to make it last? And what Tom Taylor, Trevor Harrison, and the rest of the team on this book accomplished is making a story that might just be one of the most surprising stories of the year of 2019 and of you know the decade i think it's safe to say going back into the 2010s dc east was such a surprise and how good it was from issue to issue that it took everybody by surprise everybody was caught off guard and it became one of the best books of the year so what i wanted to do is take some time Put a spotlight on this book and really talk about why it was so great. Um, I've been putting this off. Uh, I think it's weird getting a little like you know peek behind the curtain, um, talking about you know a uh, a story that is about a global pandemic and it's like uh, with everything going on in the world right now as of this recording. Um, it felt weird to me for some reason to talk about a story like this, but um, that's just kind of what comics do. They take things that, I mean, at the time that this was coming out, you know, we weren't under lockdown. There was no global pandemic. And so I decided, you know what, it's a great story. I've been wanting to talk about it. Let's talk about it. So that's what we're going to talk about. And before we get into the actual story itself, I really want to talk about the two main contributors to the story. Tom Taylor, Trevor Harrison. Uh, I said before I wasn't super um, familiar with Trevor Harrison as an artist. And the stuff, the limited stuff that I had seen, I was, you know, it was good. But what he does in this book by not just um, bringing in the horror aspect, not just, you know, making visually stunning and also kind of disturbing images in the book is the care that he takes in crafting each of the characters that make up our heroes of this book. Um, the art is stunning. The art is um, impactful. Every page you turn and there's almost a reveal on every single page. And his, uh, his art is so well utilized in this book that we've seen in the uh, kind of the follow-up to this book, uh, Deceased Unkillables, that when you take his art out of this story and kind of out of this universe, it feels weird. Uh, that's no disrespect to the artist on Unkillables. Uh, still, really good art, but it is different, and it does bring a different flavor to it. When it comes to the writing, Tom Taylor is on the rise. Uh, for the last few years, he's been knocking out home run after home run after home run. He kind of gained prominence in the uh, comics community with the injustice Unjustice with the Injustice uh, comic run, which started off as just strictly a prequel to the first game and then became an entire universe unto itself with, I think, five years worth of stories as well as spinoffs. Tom Taylor crafted an entire universe, and since then he has been knocking just book after book after book out for both DC and Marvel. Um, his 
Run on Spider-Man, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man is a book that is still recommended to me this day. Shout out to Malcolm over at uh, Heroes and Villains in Tucson who will not let up on reminding me how good Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man is. I'm going to read it uh, during this time, but Tom Taylor has consistently made stories that are interesting, that challenge the characters in new and inventive ways, and this book is no different. Tom Taylor takes characters that we know in a setting that we know and puts them into a situation that, even though we have seen done before, um, is done way differently in this book. Now, getting into the actual book, that kind of brings me to that expectation. The story was essentially marketed, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, as a zombie story in the DC Universe, which a lot of people, myself included, drew um, comparisons to Marvel Zombies. And for me, when I heard this, I was like, oh, it's just, it's going to be a Marvel Zombies rehash. I'm not, you know, I'm not about this. I'm not here for it. And after picking up that first book, what became abundantly clear to me was that this book is not Marvel Zombies. It's not just a rehash of stories we've seen before. And that really comes down to its premise and the way that it is um, presented to us. Now, the premise being that the villain Darkseid, Fourth World, New Gods, the whole deal, um, uses essentially uses the anti-life equation in conjunction with Cyborg to broadcast the anti-life equation through all forms of technology all around the world. This effectively makes anyone who's looking at a computer screen, at their smartphone, at the TV, at anything that has to do with technology that you can view, turning basically infecting them with the... Uh, anti-life equation and turning them into essentially zombies they're never stated that they are zombies in fact there's a moment where uh, green arrow is arguing he's like no they're zombies like they walk they talk they act like zombies you can call it whatever you want but these guys are zombies but the understanding is that basically these people are driven insane with an insatiable bloodlust to kill anything and everything around them. And so the DC Universe now has to deal with this fact that the uh, infection is rapidly growing with people who are so interconnected to technology being turned in the blink of an eye and the idea that now they have to figure out what they're going to do in this story to solve that problem. And one of the big, I think, um, curveballs that this story throws you throughout the story is that it clears the board of the easy outs. You know, we think of stories like this, like um, pandemics, um, like disease stories in the DC universe. We've seen things like Contagion. We've seen things like the um, the Amazovirus, like all of this stuff we've seen before. But what they decide to do in this is they clear the board of the people who would be able to fix this. Cyborg is utilized at the very beginning of the story to spread the virus. Um, completely unwilling, he's forced to, but he is essentially ground zero for all of it. He's patient zero for the entire um, infection. Uh, Bruce Wayne, Batman, who is the person who 
theoretically would be the person to go to to solve all this is taken off the board after the first issue. Like, it's crazy how quickly they start to clear the board with these characters. Um, Lex Luthor is, I believe, in issue four or five, um, taken off the board as well. Wonder Woman is forced to be on the back turn and is forced to... um, be on the defensive for the entire series, which is uh, not akin to what she is used to doing in these kind of crises. And Superman is put through some of the greatest tests that he's ever been through in his comics history. And these three characters, our Trinity, is essentially rendered null and void throughout the course of the story, from Batman at the outset to Superman near the middle and to Wonder Woman at the end. This is just incredible how they decide to take the major players who everyone would assume would be the characters leading the charge for the victory here off the board and out of the way which does give rise to not just escalation which is what every single issue does making the problem worse and worse and worse with not only the um spread of the anti-life equation but also the elimination of heroes who would be able to stop this but also it opens the door for smaller characters more minor characters in the greater realm of the dc universe to get a spotlight here uh one of the big turns the character the two characters who almost could be considered the pov characters for the series um with certain exceptions here and there, are Dinah Lance and Oliver Queen, Green Arrow and Black Canary. Uh, The story starts off with the two of them uh, on a camping trip with Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, and Hal is infected by the anti-life equation and is basically turned into a zombie right in front of uh, Oliver and Dinah. And so not only do you get this great action set piece where the two of them have to fight a zombified Green Lantern. But once they are able to eliminate him, his ring goes off to find a new bearer. And the person that it chooses is Dinah Lance. Um, Turning her into a Green Lantern was such a... uh, It was such a wonderful and... um, spirited choice it was something that we had never never seen before something i had never even thought about but it makes all the sense in the world dinah lance has some of has one of the greatest examples of willpower in the entire dc universe and the fact that she is this power is just kind of thrust upon her in this story and she has to make do with what she's got in the middle of a crisis is exhilarating and it really gives a new dimension to that character uh tom taylor also has such a great handle on oliver queen both in how he is utilized in a story and also his characterization because those are two very uh distinct and different things how a character is utilized in a story does not always equate to how a character is written or personified or the actual character part of that character and what tom taylor does so well here is he utilizes green arrow exactly at the points that he needs to be utilized in the story but also gives him great character moments there's a moment where uh, green arrow kind of essentially finds out that batman doesn't have faith in his ability to aim and there's a moment where 
he just makes one of the most ridiculous shots that he's made in his entire history as a character. And it's immediately followed up by a close-up of his face with uh, with him, with the word, word bubble saying, fuck you, Batman. Like, it's just so well done in his characterization and his voice for Oliver Queen that it made me immediately want to see him writing Oliver Queen, like putting a focus on Oliver Queen and making him, because we haven't had a an ongoing series with Oliver Queen for a while. For a while, it started off really, really strong with um, DC Rebirth, but he's kind of been put on the wayside since then. And so seeing him here and having him, you know, get a spotlight in this story really was kind of a breath of fresh air. And the fact that he now kind of has to deal with the idea that not only does Dinah, his, his, the love of his life, have, um, have her uh, metahuman ability where she's able to use the canary cry but now she's also a green lantern and so this both escalates um black canary's kind of status among her other heroes while also de-escalating um uh, Oliver Queen's role. So it's really cool just getting to see them deal with this uh, this outbreak and this crisis and watching how they deal with the idea that they are, regardless of whether they are Justice League members or not, them, they are street-level characters. And that's some of the most interesting, I think personally as a reader, some of the most interesting things you can do is putting street-level characters in a cosmic-level situation. And this is absolutely on that level. Um, another character who gets a lot of focus, a surprising amount of focus, but an amount of focus that I absolutely adore is Alfred. Alfred gets a spotlight in this book, and it kind of harkens back to the Injustice uh, run that Tom Taylor did, where he put a big focus on Alfred and how he uh, was handling all the events of the lead-up to the Injustice game, how his, how this war between Batman and Superman uh, affects Alfred and the greater Batman family. And so getting his uh, perspective in this story was really, really cool because, of course, at the end of issue one, Batman gets bit. He is attacked in Wayne Manor by Tim Drake and Nightwing, who have already been turned. And Alfred is forced to, at the end of issue two, kill Batman. And it's this weirdly... Um, it's this weirdly cathartic moment at the at the outset of uh, or the onset of issue three, where Alfred essentially becomes the lead Bat family member in the story, um, and it becomes a story of him and Damien trying to navigate what this world and what this uh, crisis is going to end up now that they don't have Bruce, now that they don't have Batman. Um, his story learning to kind of figure out where he fits in the response to this, as well as the later plot to get everyone evacuated off the earth is really well done and when he um, shows up later on in the story to finally reunite with Damien it's incredible. Damien also gets a huge focus in this story along with John, uh, John Kent and their friendship is on is in front and center 
in this story. I have always loved the Super Sons dynamic. That is one of the things that I will never forgive Bendis for taking away, aging up John and making him not uh, Damien's peer anymore. And that really affected their relationship. Here, they are the same age, they are right back to where they should be, and it is so good seeing them interact with each other, having to deal with these... um, having to deal with these situations and how they, as essentially the inheritors of the DC universe, now have to deal with the entire universe crumbling around them. Um, when Alfred shows up, going back to that point, uh, he shows up in the Batplane, and there's a moment, there's a brief moment where Damien's like, okay, good, my dad's here. Because he spent all of this time separated from Bruce because he was um, having a... Uh, a gaming night with John in Metropolis. And Damien is like, up until this point, he's like, my dad's going to figure this out. He knows this. He knows what he's doing. He solved everything before he's going to solve this too. And when Alfred steps out of the bat plane, the shock and the um, despair that is rendered upon Damien is so compelling um alfred also gives him a bat suit he's like this is yours now you've inherited this um it does also have to do with the fact that everyone who essentially was ahead of him in line is now wiped out um but seeing damien have to step into the batman role is really cool because this is not the um batman issue 666 damien where he's made a deal with the devil and he's got supernatural powers and he's running an authoritarian state in Gotham. This is legit how it would happen when Damien eventually gets past the mantle of Batman, where he is like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this because I, in a way, always leaned on Bruce for this. And so Watching him kind of grow over the course of the story was really cool. Watching John um, grow with him while dealing with this uh, crisis that he's never, ever had to deal with. Uh, Damien at least got to deal with Final Crisis. But John, this is his first big event in this continuity. And so he has to very quickly grow up over the course of this story and... Over the course of issues four and five, even he is dealt a huge blow. There's a moment where he, um, they've all essentially made their way onto the arcs to escape from Earth One to wherever they're going, and John takes a moment because he looks at Damien. Damien's in his little bat suit, which um, is just hilarious. Seeing little Damien in his little bat suit running around is so fun. But there's a moment where he, you know, he puts his hand on Damien's shoulder. He's like, you're going to make a great Batman. And it's like that friendship is something that is, it's priceless. And it makes this book and all of these characters feel not just real, but also true to their characters. Um, A lot of times we'll see in, especially in recent years, uh, comic characters who are kind of plucked away from their natural environment and are given widely, wildly different um, characterization that flies in the face of the um, the spirit of that character when they're created. And what Tom Taylor does so well here is that he has to juggle 
a lot of different characters and is able to make all of those characters ring true across the entire story and it's fantastic um John does have to deal with not just the loss of his home, but of course also with the loss of his father near the end of the story, which brings me to Superman. He knew we were going to come here. I'm a huge Superman fan, always have been, and so I have a very um, critical eye whenever Superman is utilized in stories like this, or just in, I mean, in stories in general but i love what tom taylor here did with superman um i already knew that tom taylor could write a really compelling superman because he did so in the injustice run and seeing him take on a more traditional version of superman for this story makes me just want to wipe the board clean and put tom taylor in charge of superman in action comics um, I am a huge proponent of the Tomasi and Gleason run from the Rebirth era, but I would love to see Tom Taylor on an ongoing Superman book. And what he does so well here is he sees the, not just once again with the point I made about um, Oliver Queen, he sees not just how to utilize Superman in the narrative, but also how Superman is as a character. And... There are moments across the story that are heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I think when Alfred has to kill Bruce, it's heartbreaking. When Damien, you know, finds out that Bruce is gone, it's heartbreaking. When um, I don't, I want to, I don't want to get to the ending yet, but. Across the board, over the course of these six issues, there are heartbreaking moments, but the one that really sticks out to me, the two that effectively really stick out to me, um, happen over the course of issues four and five, where Superman is dealing with the entirety of this problem. He's flying all over, um, pretty much all over the U.S., um, saving people as much as he can, but also trying to defend himself and others against the growing, I'm just going to call him zombie threat. And there's a moment where he realizes, I have to go back home. And he goes back to Smallville, and he finds Ma there. And he's like, where's Pa? And Ma's like, he's in the barn. And you know immediately when she says that, that he's been turned, that, he, th that he's gone. And... Clark makes Ma stand outside. He's like, I'll be back. And he goes into the barn. And you see that the little basement where they kept uh, Clark's rocket is chained up. And so Superman, you know, he unlocks the chains. He opens the door. And pa Zombie Paw just comes ambling out, you know, reaching for him trying to scratch at him, trying to bite him, and Superman is just holding him by the wrists at bay because Pa's still an old man, and he's human. And so he can't get even close to Superman, but it's heartbreaking watching Superman just see what his paws become. And after holding, you know, holding him back for, you know, 30 seconds, a couple panels, he slowly pushes Pa back into the basement, shuts the doors, and chains it back up. And he comes out of the barn, and ah, I'm already, ah, I'm already getting emotional about it. He comes out of the barn, and um, Ma's like, 
what are we doing? What's next? And Superman's like, we have to go. Pa's not here. And he, you know, picks up his mom. They fly away. And it's heartbreaking watching something as innocent as the concept of Ma and Pa Kent be corrupted by this, too. So the other piece is um, in issue five, because the big kind of do ex machina for this story was always the flashes um from the outset of the crisis batman had wally west and barry allen under lockdown because not only are they the trump card to you know go back in time if they need to um get them more time as damien puts it but they're all they also know that if either wally or barry are infected they will be unstoppable. And there is, at that point, no stopping this. And they make it very clear from the beginning of the story that the people who they absolutely cannot lose, they cannot get infected, or else everything is lost, is Barry Allen, Wally West, and Superman. And what they make that, they establish that very quickly and very early on in the story. And so, of course, because it is what it is, Wally West and... No. Why can't I remember if Wally West gets... Anyway, Barry Allen gets infected, and he is running around the world infecting as many people as he can, as quickly as he can. And Superman realizes that I'm the only thing that can stop him. And he... You know, there's this great moment where Barry is running around the world in one direction and Superman starts flying around the world the other direction. And he's in communication with Cyborg and he's like, you have to tell me he's not alive anymore. You have to confirm it with me. And Cyborg's like, well, what are you talking about? He's, he's like, no, you have to tell me he is not alive anymore, that he is not there, that he is not human anymore and he's not alive and he's already dead and he's gone. And basically telling Cyborg, you have to tell me that I can destroy him. Because if he's if there's even the smallest chance that he's alive, that he can be brought back, I'm not going to do this. And so Cyborg gives him the okay, and Superman flies as fast as he can and just explodes through Barry Allen. And it is... Again, so true to Superman's character that he has to know in his heart of hearts and be confirmed that he is not taking a life to be able to do something like this. It's so true to Superman's character, and I love it. Unfortunately, pretty quickly after this, he realizes there's this great moment where everyone's kind of like celebrating. They're like, yeah, Superman's still here. He saved the day. You know, as long as Superman's here, everything's going to be all right. And there's this slow realization where Superman slowly looks down and he sees teeth marks. As he flew through Barry, he was able to bite down into Superman's ribs, into Superman's side, and Superman's infected. And... Oh, man, it's that moment where you kind of know as a reader, because everything that they've set up to this point is that they have one last line of defense, and Barry's already been taken off the board, and now Superman has been infected. And so there's this moment, everyone's getting ready, everyone's getting ready to, you know, leave and head off on these arcs, and Superman 
has to tell everyone that he's infected. And so there's this great speech that he gives in issue five. And it's, uh, once again, so true and to the core of his character because he knows that the infection's coming. He knows that he has only so much time. So he tries to say goodbye to as many people as he can. Of course, there's him saying goodbye to John and Lois, which is the most heartbreaking thing. And he finally, he's like, okay, I gotta go. And he says goodbye to them and he rockets up into space because his plan is since he's infected, he is going to fly into the sun, which will theoretically, or no, it was um, him flying into space because in this, uh, in this continuity, he can't breathe in space. And so he's going to fly up into space and suffocate and die so that he won't turn because he knows that the second he does, everything's lost for everyone who's still living. And so he's flying as fast as he can. And the narration is heartbreaking and really well utilized here. Uh, once again, Tom Taylor's writing is fantastic, but it's also Trevor Harrison's art that really sells this where it basically says Superman took too long in so many words. He took too long saying goodbye to John and Lois. And if he had left earlier, he would have made it. But just as he enters the stratosphere, he turns and there's this heartbreaking image of him. It's the final ish or the final uh, panel of issue five where he is just turning and he you can see the horror and the anguish on his face his uh heat vision is blasting out of just horror and it's amazing it's so good and so issue six becomes the story of okay what's gonna friggin happen here uh because at that point the game is over the game is lost um Issue 5 is my uh, is probably my favorite issue for this reason uh, because it's it leaves off one of the best cliffhangers of the entire series. And so it's up to issue 6 to wrap this all up. And so what they essentially do is with the rising escalation of issue after issue after issue, um, issue 6 is basically what happens when our biggest beacon of hope for today is gone and the answer to that is a hope for tomorrow and everyone has made it out of the arcs they're all leaving um superman is infected he ends up fighting and infecting diana because she is basically trying to utilize um this is a great scene where she's constructing a sword to kill him utilizing magic as well as kryptonite it doesn't end up working they are able to lop off an arm uh, from Superman, but he is able to defeat and infect Diana. So the entire Trinity is infected by the end of this series. And the Arcs are escaping. Diana was basically there to buy them time. And the Arcs are escaping, and Superman is rocketing off after these Arcs. He is going to just fly through and destroy it. And th this is the moment when John looks at Damien, and he's like, you're going to make a great Batman. And before Lois even realizes what he's doing, and it's so good, um, John opens up the uh, the escape hatch and rockets out to meet his father in the vacuum of space to fight him. And it's so freaking good. It's just, Damien is just, or John is just flying full force. The two collide 
in the air, and it's so great because John knows he can't beat his dad. But if he can do, if he can be a hero just like his dad was and save everybody, even if just for just for now, he will have done his job. And once again, that speaks to his character. Uh, thankfully, even though he is able to repel Superman and it takes everything from him to do that, he is rescued by the Green Lantern Corps and the two of them, or the Green Lantern Corps is able to deposit John back on the arcs and basically is like, okay, we're here now. Um, and the conclusion that ends up happening here is really, really well done, really well utilized. Um... Superman, because of course he's the anti-life equation, so they are so regardless of the zombie zombieification of these characters, they are being run by an equation. So they are utilized they're utilizing tactics throughout the entire story, which is also a great new idea that we haven't seen utilized with zombies before. And he basically says, okay, well, if I can't win this, I'm just going to fly into the sun and kill everything. So Superman flies in the sun and uh, is basically trying to kill the sun so that the rest of the world and the universe will burn out. Meanwhile, the Ark makes its way to Earth 2. And so that's basically where everything leaves off. Uh, there's this heartbreaking moment near the end where Cyborg, who also stayed behind with Diana, because he believed that he was, he's patient zero. He is where the virus began. And so he is, he elects to stay behind because he doesn't want to bring that threat to this new Earth. And Diana, the infected Diana, who's been infected by the anti-life equation, reveals that not only can they speak, but Diana reveals that Cy Cyborg was the antidote. That him being Ground Zero was also them, was also theoretically would have been the base that they could have created some kind of antidote. And it's so heartbreaking because no one knows. No one knows except Cyborg. Um, Wonder Woman rips his head off killing him and it's just basically earth one is fucked they're gone they're done and um the issue and the series the uh the first chapter of the series ends with the survivors from earth one making their way to earth two and hoping that they'll be able to start life anew there so once again like the issue ends on a hopeful note, kind of a bittersweet hopeful note, but it's a great, great story that opens the door for other stories to take place. Um, and the story does continue. You know, right now we have the first two issues of Deceased Unkillables, which is essentially a side story of what is happening while... Um, all of the main story from Deceased is going on, starring Red Hood and Cassandra Kane. That's going on along with the villains of the DC universe dealing with this threat. Uh, the first issue, or the third issue to conclude that three-part uh, side story was supposed to come out this week. 
but of course, with the state of comics how it is, we won't be seeing that for now. But also, sometime this year, you know, fingers crossed, we are supposed to get the official sequel for the story, that being Deceased Dead Planet, uh, which takes place five years later, where the heroes, the surviving heroes from Earth 2, get a distress beacon from Earth 1. And so they decide to go back. So it opens the door for a lot of great stories. Um, It's a unique take that we haven't seen before, and it's absolutely a story that you should go out of your way to uh, check out. Whether you order hard copy from your local comic book shop, if they are able to do shipped out orders, um, whether you're able to order it on Amazon, uh, get it shipped to you, or you just go on Comixology, do yourself a favor, read this book. It's a great event book, great event story, and overall just a great look at the DC universe from both the characters on high as well as the street level characters. And it is, I think, one of the best new additions to the vast library of DC crises, both bringing these characters together and also putting a new spin on a proven on a proven story. And even with the odds stacked against Taylor and Harrisine taking a story that we've seen before with characters that we know, they ended up putting out a story that though it started as a very underhyped rehash, it became one of the greatest surprise smash hits of recent memory. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing episode two of season two of the animated Harley Quinn show on the DC Universe streaming service and app. DC Universe is not a sponsor of this podcast, but they could totally be a sponsor of this podcast. But they are putting out some of the best quality content when it comes to um, super superhero and comic book TV storytelling. Um, if you haven't listened to our DC Universe ranked episode, go back a couple episodes. It is there. It's great. I love it. Um, but this episode we are specifically reviewing in uh, this segment is episode two titled Riddle you. Uh, this is continuing on the Harley versus the Rogues saga from the uh, season premiere. She's already won down. She's killed the Penguin. And now she has set her sights on another. Uh, what this episode does really well uh, is that it puts some of the ideas that you, at least I, didn't think about when the outset of this story started. And that's that with the city basically being disavowed from the United States and with the earthquake happening, they have 
a lot of issues and not just the fact that the villains are essentially running the city um they also have like normal people issues like utilities specifically power um harley's gang while they're still staying in their you know their rundown closed up mall uh they don't have any power to the city and you find out that the reason is because all of the power of the city is being gobbled up and centered in the riddler's zone of the city which is riddle you and it's so funny because they do this gag where it's like they show a whole commercial for riddle you for the um basically a university for only the sharpest minds in gotham and it's like very idyllic like the campus has power it's got running water it's got all of the stuff that people want in the city and there are people you know clamoring at the gates trying to push the gates down just to get in but riddler will only admit those who are intellectually worthy and so they have you know harley and the rest of the gang hatches this plan that her and ivy will infiltrate riddle you kill the riddler or otherwise incapacitate him and take the power back and so they infiltrate as uh, college co-eds and are met by clayface who is probably probably my f- okay i'm gonna say my second favorite part of this episode because he straight up um rips off characters like um like L from uh, Legally Blonde or from Clueless, where he is straight up just 90s, like, um, college girl. Um, and it's so funny just watching him interact both with uh, Harley and Ivy, who are also, you know, out of their depth in a way because their they're only um, exposure to college was, like, back in the 90s. Uh, but also Clayface interacting with other students and how they immediately accept clayface um i can't remember the name that he goes by but um as this college girl people like love her she's super popular uh she even has like a degrassi style like dating drama across the episode it's it's really funny but what this episode and this section of the episode does I think just as importantly is it introduces us to Barbara Gordon. Uh, Barbara Gordon, Babs officially enters the story here, and she is just at this point a very athletic gymnastics-based um, student. So it's really interesting, and I think having her kind of be the point of contact for them across their uh, their experience with the uh with the university was really well done uh, her characterization is pretty much your classic barbara gordon uh she is very athletically gifted but also incredibly book smart and a little bit eager as well she has to deal with um her dad who just barely snuck in before you know everything got shut down and has been living with her uh in her dorm room ever since so it's it's the uh the degradation of Jim Gordon as a person continues. But the B plot with the B team, the one, my favorite part of this whole episode was uh, King Shark and Dr. Psycho. Um, the two of them, it starts off as just like a quick little um, 
excursion to go find a water purifier because with all the power being diverted to Riddler's zone, um, the running water is completely un, um, undrinkable. And so they are on their way to a black market dealer to get a water purifier. And what ends up happening across this episode is they get in a whole band of hijinks with members of Two-Face's gang who have essentially taken over the police department and are using the uh, cop cars to get around. Um, They build like a Mad Max style uh, car with a giant spike on the front where they impale one of Two-Face's goons. But they eventually accidentally find themselves in Bane's territory and so they have to now fight their way out of Bane's territory and by the time that everybody kind of regroups at the end of the episode you see that they've been through shit they've been through hell and I love that we we don't get to see as much of their um their battle through Bane's territory or uh Bainton as they uh as the Bane goons call it but it was just great getting them together, and I would love to see more of their uh, more adventures starring just the two of them. Uh, that does speak to how strong all the characters in Harley's gang are, in that they can have B-plots without Harley, and that can still be wildly entertaining because they're all so different. So I really, really enjoyed that. Now, at the end of the episode, Riller's defeated, and he's kind of hooked up to this uh, hamster wheel to give them power with an electric shock collar, and... That's two off the board for Harley. But more importantly, Barbara Gordon is inspired by taking down the Riddler and by the idea that her father says that Gotham City needs a Batman to she becomes Batgirl. The birth of Batgirl happens in this episode. Um, There are certain continuity questions that come up with this. You know, if we've already gone through... uh, Robins to the point that Damian Wayne is Robin. Why is Barbara just becoming Batgirl now? Um, but this is in its own universe, so uh, they have room, I guess, to play around with time and continuity. But it did kind of bring up a question about that for me. Um, also, kind of speaking to the idea of, you know, where's Nightwing? Where's Red Hood? Where's Tim Drake? All this stuff. Were they ever Robin? Is Damian Wayne the first Robin? Who knows? But. Overall, really, really enjoyed this episode. I would say uh, the first episode is stronger, but it was still a hell of a fun time, and I'm really excited to get to next week's episode. So that is going to do it for this week's weekly review. We are now going to go ahead and roll on to this week's Comics Callback. Welcome back to this week's Comics Callback. This is the segment of our show where each week I talk about five comics that you should go back and read, whether it's on Comixology, the DC Universe app, or just going back to your shelf and dusting off your old copy of the book. Last week we took a look at books by Grant Morrison. This week, category is Daredevil. Uh, Daredevil is celebrating its basically five years since the debut of the Netflix show and with all the hype around Daredevil um, 
from the past few years, I really wanted to kind of take a look back at five Daredevil comics that I think you should go back and read. Um, of course, I'll be using my synopsis voices for each synopsis of each of these books, but you can find all of these books on Amazon and Comixology or your uh, comics platform of choice. Uh, I mean, there is a safe bet that some of you do have these books at home. So if you have, if you have them, if you've read them, dust them back off, give them a quick read again. I know I ended up reading a couple of these books back to back over the course of this past week to get ready for this. And I just, I loved it. So going into number five on the list, we have issue number 26 from 2001. This is the beginning of the Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Malev uh, run of the book. Uh, this is probably one of the most seminal modern runs of Daredevil. This is the one that really brought Daredevil down to the nitty-gritty realism that people kind of associate with the character today. So let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis for this first issue. What happens inside Matt Murdock when he puts on the Crimson Mask? And when the human bomb named Nitro attacks, is the man without fear also the man without mercy? Plus, who is Mr. Silk, and what does his appearance mean for the Kingpin? So what this run of the, of the character did was it reintroduced kind of the gritty crime drama aspect to his character. Um, this is also one of the darkest runs of Daredevil. This is the slow degradation corruption of Matt Murdock over the course of his story. I don't want to spoil anything because I want you to check this out. It's a big run, um, but this really was one of the best Daredevil runs of all time, and I absolutely recommend checking it out. Next up, we have another story from 2001, that being Daredevil Yellow, written by Jeff Loeb with art by Tim Sale. Uh, this is one of the many uh, Marvel color books, I call them, uh, written by Jeff Loeb with art by Tim Sale. Our first official Geek Explained Spotlight was on one of the books from this line, that being Spider-Man Blue. This book has just as much love for the character, and it's so freaking good. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. After the death of Matt Murdock's father, Battlin' Jack Murdock, Matt dedicates his life to eradicating crime from the streets of Hell's Kitchen. Witness the birth of Daredevil as a young Murdock trains his body and mind to become a hero. So, just like Spider-Man Blue, this book really kind of centers around... Um, Matt Murdock looking back on his early years and specifically his relationship with one Karen Page. If you are a fan of the Netflix, uh, the Netflix show and you love uh, the relationship between Matt and Karen, you will absolutely like this book. Um, this is also it's gorgeous art. Uh, the story of of Matt becoming Daredevil also utilizes 
probably the most underappreciated uh, Daredevil costume, which is the yellow costume, and you cannot tell me otherwise. I believe it's one of the best Daredevil costumes. Um, but I love this book because of what an introspective book, and really this entire series, is, and how well Jeff Loeb is able to give Matt Murdock's voice both um, both to his life as a vigilante as well as his life as a blind Catholic lawyer. So um, this is a great character piece. It's not super long, um, which the previous entry, the Bendis run, is sort of. Uh, <laughs> but it's really a great story that is an awesome graphic novel that you can pretty much find anywhere. So next up, we have the current run of Daredevil by Chip Zdarsky with art by uh, Marco Cicchetto as well as George Fornes. And I absolutely love this book. Um, it's been well documented that I, um, that I came to this book pretty late in the game. I was recommended it at the tail end of last year and it ended up becoming one of my favorite books of the year. Um, it's also has its place on our uh, top five comics you should be reading. It's that good that it. This is the third time I'm talking about it on the podcast. It is absolutely worth your time. It's a it's a fantastic book. Chip Zdarsky is just killing it right now. And uh, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. The next chapter in the ever surprising saga of Daredevil. After a brush with death, Matt Murdock must piece together his shattered life, and that includes returning to action as Daredevil. But years of trauma have taken their toll, and becoming the guardian of Hell's Kitchen he once was won't be easy. Mistakes will be made along the way, and this time, one might actually prove to be the end of him. Because when a criminal dies and Daredevil takes the blame, Matt must go on the run in a desperate bid to clear his name. But even he can't outrun judgment forever. And with Daredevil's absence from Hell's Kitchen, the real devils can come out to play. So what I love so much about this book is just the idea that it really boils down to character pieces on its two leads. And that is Matt Murdock and Wilson Fisk. Once again, and, I, and I'm going to probably bring it up more than once across this uh, segment, if you loved the Netflix show, you will love this run of the book. This is probably the closest uh, run to that original show that we have seen. And Chip Zdarsky's voice for both uh, Wilson and Matt is so well done, making them both distinct. And the challenges that they have to deal with across the board are so fun and inventive and really also dark and kind of depressing. Uh, Matt has to deal with the idea that he might not be as good a superhero as he thinks he is. Wilson Fisk has to deal with the idea that he is a big fish in a small pond, a small pond. And when he swims out to the greater ocean, he will get swallowed up. So it's a great character piece on both characters. The art is gorgeous. The action is kinetic. And overall, it's a great look at how Daredevil is as a character nowadays. Next up, we have probably one of, if not the most iconic Daredevil story of all time, and that is Daredevil Born Again. 
Written by Frank Miller, art by David Mazzucchelli. This is the iconic Daredevil story. If people ask you, you know, what's Daredevil about? You know, I want to read this character. You will almost always be pointed in the direction of Daredevil Born Again. Um, And that's just honestly because it's a fantastic story. This is Frank Miller at the height of his storytelling when it comes to Daredevil. And that's the reason that it stuck around so long that's the reason that it provided the basis of season three of the netflix series uh i did a whole episode just based on this book you can go back in the archives find it listen to it um but it is just a fantastic story that comprises daredevil uh, number 226 to issue 233 and that encompasses both his fall, his redemption, and ultimately his rise back to um, back to prominence. So it's a great story. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Definitive Daredevil Tale by industry legends Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli. Karen Page, Matt Murdock's former lover, has traded away the Man Without Fear's secret identity for a drug fix. Now, Daredevil must find strength as the kingpin of crime wastes no time taking him down as low as a human can get. So yeah, the basic premise of the story is Kingpin finds out who Daredevil is and makes his life a living hell. So it's a great story, a great tale of the triumph of the human spirit both finding his way as well as karen page who serves as the um as the secondary protagonist and the driving force behind both the a plot and the b plot uh the two of them finding each other once again after all this time is also a fantastic comic moment and is iconic when it comes to that character so that is why it is on this list and will pretty much be on any other daredevil list but the book for me the book that i always find myself coming back to the book that i absolutely think that you should um, read out of this list is the Mark Wade and Chris Somney Daredevil run. Starting, you can start earlier with the um, Paolo Rivera on art run. Uh, the weird thing about this run is that Mark Wade basically was started off from number one, wrote up to a certain point, then Marvel Now happened and the renumbering happened, and so he had to start a new number one. I personally prefer the uh, Samney run just because I, I prefer Samney's art. But you can read either starting there or from the Paolo Rivera uh, penned issues. So this book is just, it's incredible. I'll just go ahead and dive into the synopsis and then we'll talk about the book as a whole. Marvel's fearless hero begins his most awe-inspiring adventure yet in sunny San Francisco. Daredevil has headed west and now protects the Golden City streets from evil, both as a costumed hero and as blind lawyer Matt Murdock. But big changes are in store for Matt as old haunts and familiar faces rise to give the devil his due. The owl is back, and he isn't working alone. But old enemies are small potatoes compared to Matt's new friend, the would-be hero known as the Shroud. As one of Dee Dee's oldest enemies is permanently redefined, deadlier than ever, Kirsten and Matt find themselves sharing a volatile secret. But who will crack first? Plus, what killed Foggy Nelson? 
So with that synopsis, it pretty much tells you all you need to know about this book. Uh, this is directly leading off of the uh, Brubaker, Bendis, um, and Diggle runs. This was basically like, hey, Mark Wade was Mark Wade was handed the story and was basically told, hey, we ruined Daredevil's life. Have fun. And so um, what this book does so well is it really brings you back to the core of the character, the original intent with Daredevil, which was to be fun, to be a swashbuckling, um, take no prisoners, like fun adventure crime book. And what he does so well and what is so well uh, utilized in Somni's art is that Daredevil's fun. This really is, once again, speaking to the um, the core theme of Daredevil, which is ultimately the triumph of the human spirit. But it also blends in fun action, new characters, heartwarming moments. The relationship between Matt Murdock and Foggy Nelson arguably is at its strongest during this run. Um, it's just a fantastic story that really is one of the greatest Daredevil runs of all time and is a book that I always find myself going back to. Whether it's, you know, I'm in the mood for a Daredevil book or whether I want to just have a book that I can have fun with. Uh, the Somni half of the run starts with uh, the volume Devil at Bay. So if you're looking for to start there, you can. Um, but I would honestly recommend all of Mark Wade's run of of Daredevil. It's so good. It's so fun. It gets right back to the core of the character while also introducing new characters and putting Matt into even darker situations at times. So it's just overall a great story. And if you're a fan of Daredevil and you want to see a new look at the character, definitely pick this book up. And that is going to do it for this week's comics callback. To recap, we have the Bendis run, starting with Daredevil number 26. We have Daredevil Yellow. We have Daredevil The Current Run by Chip Zdarsky and Marco Cicchetto, as well as Daredevil Born Again, the iconic Daredevil story. And finally, Daredevil by Mark Wade and Chris Somney. Uh, feel free to suggest comics you would like me to... Um, feature on this segment i'm always taking suggestions for categories and i would love to get some challenges you know let's let's get you know the top five books you would recommend by brian michael bendis if you really want to give me a challenge uh, let's you know do all of this i think this segment really is something that i am gonna keep working on and keep building uh, i got pretty comfortable with the comics countdown, we got into a good rhythm, and I'm still trying to, you know, find my rhythm for this segment. But I think it's a great opportunity to go back and read comics that either A, you've read before and just want to go back, or B, comics you never heard about, but, you know, want to dip your toes into because you're interested in either the character or the writer or the artist. So tune in next week for uh, another comics callback on the comics that I think you should go back and read. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up of this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to give us a rating and review, especially on iTunes. Definitely helps us out. Uh, also, feel free to give us a follow on either of our social medias, at Pod. That's at P-O-D on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can also feel free to reach out to us on either of those social medias or through email to geeksplain at gmail.com because I'm an old man and I still read emails. And I just want to know. 
what you thought about what we talked about this week. Um, are you a huge Daredevil fan? Have you read the comics that we suggested? Uh, what do you think of DCs? Did you read DCs last year? Were you as surprised by it as I was? It's a fantastic story, and I definitely think that in this time, the best thing you can do, especially if you uh, if you are not currently working as an essential worker uh, is to go back stay home and read comics also before we head out of here i do just want to um i guess put a little um shout out there is an event going on on uh youtube on this saturday as of this recording that is let me check my calendar the 18th of april and it is the at home comic con that's going to be on youtube uh, basically, all of your favorite comic YouTubers decided to get together and put on panels that are going to be stretched across all day on Saturday, so feel free to tune in. Tune in. It's free to view, and YouTubers like Comic Story and like Owen Likes Comics, Captain Midnight, big friend of the podcast Matt Draper will be on there as well, as well as Josh from Panels to Pixels, big fan of his. He reached out recently. Shout out to him. He's awesome. And if you haven't watched his videos, they are amazing. If you're a fan of comic books, if you're a fan of comic book games, he is the guy to go to on YouTube. Um, they aren't paying me to promote this event. I just think it's a really super cool thing. Um, comic cons have been one of the one of the many casualties of the COVID-19 crisis with everything getting shut down, uh, big events being pushed back, delayed, or canceled. Um, and I think this is really cool that they're putting something together. They decided to do this. Everything that they uh, get that is donated, again, it's completely free. But if you choose to donate, all proceeds are going straight to charity. So it's an awesome event. And I definitely think you should check it out. I will be checking it out and donating for sure. Once again, if you want to uh, check that out, just feel free to look up At Home Comic Con. They've got... A Twitter page, I think they've got an Instagram page, and then uh, you can check them out on YouTube. Just type in At Home Comic Con. So definitely look forward to that. Once again, that'll be on uh, Saturday. And that is going to do it for this week's show. So tune in next week for episode 105 as we continue on our Geek Explained Quarantine Saga. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explained, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will. See you next time. Cause I know
Cause I'm a 